Good evening once again. Uh, I'm so glad to have you all at another William J. Hughes Center for Public Policy event. Uh, we are going to get started and stay very true to time, as I usually promise people when we do that. We have one change to the program tonight. Uh, due to some late changes that the Hughes Center had to make in the logistics for tonight's discussion, Governor McGreevy uh, will not be attending, and he sends his sincere regrets. Oh, okay. <laughs> also, just a reminder, please, if you would shut your cell phones, pagers, anything like that, because this is being taped by C-SPAN tonight, as well as Stockton College. Thank you. Uh, now I'd like to introduce to you the man who really heads things here, uh, President Herman J. Satkamp, Jr. She almost didn't give me time to shut off my cell phone, but uh, I'm doing that now. So welcome to Stockton College. Uh, this is New Jersey's distinctive public college. Uh, we're the only college I know in New Jersey, and perhaps the only one in the United States, that is in a national park setting, the Pinelands National Reserve. Highly selective, about 5,000 applications for less than 900 positions in our, fresh, in our first year class. We have major, major programs here throughout. About 30 to 40 percent of our students go on to graduate school. 8,000 students here roughly, 1,000 are graduate students, and 7,000 who are undergraduate. This program tonight is through the Hughes Center, and it really is a rather remarkable center that has gotten underway in just the last couple of years. Uh, Senator Bill Gormley has been an amazing help in getting a number of our programs together, and I want to publicly thank Senator Gormley for his help and assistance. We have a remarkably distinguished advisory board, and we also have members of our foundation board here, and Ed Salmon is the chair of, our, of the Hughes Center Advisory Board. And I would like for all members of the advisory board to please stand and of the foundation board to stand also to be recognized. <laughs> now tonight is indeed remarkably special. And what we're trying to do is we will really move forward to get to the meat of the program right away. If you're here, and I'm going to pause a little bit while people are coming in to get seated. If you came to our campus and you haven't been on our campus in a while, you might notice there are a few buildings going and a few construction projects going on. Within a very short period of time, we'll finish the largest building project since the founding of the college in 1971 in terms of the classes being offered. And this next year, we will celebrate our 40th year of teaching at Stockton. The Campus Center, 154,000 square foot building, will be open in May, and we'll be able to host a number of events in that sitting as well. So it is my great pleasure to welcome you here and to turn this over to Michael Aaron to move forward with uh, his usual remarkable interview style that is both su substantive, probing, and delightful. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Dr. Sexton. Good evening, everybody. I'm Michael Aaron, senior political correspondent at NJN News, with two esteemed colleagues from the media, Josh Margolin, who uh, 
made his name at the Newark Star-Ledger in this state, but is now at the New York Post, and Ted Sherman, who continues to make his name at the Newark Star-Ledger, <laughs> and most recently uh, did the series on the Passaic Valley Sewerage Commission, which may not mean a whole lot to people down here, but it sure meant a lot to Chris Christie, <laughs> because he went after it and uh, uh, sort of turned it upside down, and about 100 people fell out and haven't gotten back up yet. <laughs> which is what this book is somewhat about. It's about the downfall of a number of people who were not expecting to be taken down and who have all or many gone to prison as a result and whose lives have been ruined. Um, and you all remember, I'm sure, what triggered this book or the incident that this book is all about. Uh, the mass bust uh, on a day in July in 2009 of political figures, mainly in northern New Jersey, and rabbis from the shore, from Brooklyn, from the Orthodox community. Uh, these two guys decided to write a book about that case, and I want to start by asking them why. Josh, why did, why did you write a book about this case? Because nobody understood what happened, why it happened, when it first happened in July 09. Ted and I were as close to it as anybody who wasn't handcuffed. And, and, frankly, and frankly, we didn't understand it. We're, we, we come into the office on, on a, a muggy July morning, having been tipped off the night before that something big, quote unquote, was going to come down. And in New Jersey, there's always something big, and there's always a politician getting arrested, and there's always a corruption case. But my God, we're there, and, and we're getting reports from our, from our colleagues that are, that are out, in the, you know, out at the FBI headquarters, or down in Deal, or in Brooklyn. And it's a dozen politicians. It's two dozen. You have Hasidic rabbis in their long black coats with their ritual fringes flowing in, in the breeze. You have the deputy mayor of Jersey City who, who shows up, you know, handcuffed. She's 70 years old and she's wearing a low-cut dress. What are these characters? What is this? What has well, happened? Well, she was a former burlesque queen. And so that's that a whole different story. <laughs> we, we don't even know that. All we knew is that we have this really well-put-together business lady from Jersey City, deputy mayor, and she's getting perp-walked. And we hear that there's an informant in the middle of it, and the feds won't say who it is. And, and no one understands, the first day no one understands how it, how it came together, and then when you finally find out, when we finally found out what it was that tied everything together and led to these arrests, we still didn't understand it. Why would anybody, to take you back, why would anybody trust Solomon Dweck? He had been arrested already on a 50, million dollar bank fraud. And we'll go through the details, which are extraordinarily hilarious and stupid and sad. But he had been arrested already. And people are taking bribes from him and laundering his money as if somehow he's not wired by the feds. Let me, let me, stop, let me stop you there, because we, we've got to get into Dweck, because Dweck is at the heart of this story. Who would play Dweck when they make the movie <laughs> of this, by the way? It's a good question, because the whole story of, of the Jersey's thing is very cinematic. And, and most reporters, when, when they're sitting in a courtroom looking, you know, looking, waiting for a case to develop, 
we'll cast a movie just sitting there, and we, we did the same thing. So who's Dweck? Uh, you know, George Costanza, the guy who... Uh, <laughs> Uh, and he's from Jersey, so that would actually help give, <laughs> with the accent, the whole thing. What's most amazing uh, is that Solomon Dweck, at, in his late 20s, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, this whole thing got started when he went through a PNC bank in Monmouth County, uh, went through the drive through window, and passed a bad check for $25 million. You mean you don't do that? Well, it's even better than that. It wasn't a bad check. It was a $25 million check on a closed account. And the bank cashed it at the drive-thru. Well, they didn't give him cash. No, but they what gave... What did they do? They, 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 they put, they, they put they, $25 million into his account. And, and, and under the bank uh, protocol at PNC, once you deposit a check, as a customer, your funds are available immediately. Immediately. So what did he do? Within, within hours, he, he transferred all the money out, and then the next day he tried to do it again. Which is what any of us would do. <laughs> if he gave you $25 million, you would then go and do it again. Uh, up until that point, he was the son of a rabbi in Deal, part of the Syrian Jewish community that has taken over the town of Deal. Uh, and he had built a huge Ponzi scheme, correct? That was Solomon's secret life. Solomon was known as a philanthropist. He was known as, as the son of a rabbi. He was very, very successful buying properties all over Ocean and, and Monmouth counties. And what nobody realized at the time was that it was all a Ponzi scheme. He was, he was a mini Bernie Madoff. He had lots of of investors who, who were promised huge returns. And the way he did that was he was buying properties. And he was getting mortgages for these properties. And sometimes he was getting mortgages for properties he did not own. Sometimes he was getting mortgages for properties he said he was going to buy that he already bought. And, and this went on for, for years. Um, the, ba the banks kind of look ridiculous in this book. Yes, do they, they do. Not? Yes, they do. They don't do any due diligence on all these. Only and, on the mortgage on my <laughs> <laughs> And in fact, he, sa he said that in, in, you know, eventually he ends up in bankruptcy court, and he's, he's deposed about this. And he said, yes, the banks did no due diligence, and any excuse he gave them normally was accepted. If, if a bank Isn't quit that amazing? It, it was just astounding to us. You know, I, I, if, if I don't pay my mortgage... You hear from uh, the bank. Exactly, exactly. Um, in the book, uh, you write that... Well, uh, Ted just made the, the analogy to Bernie Madoff, but uh, you wrote at one point in the book that although he was running a massive Ponzi scheme, and I think you'd say that he had built up $310 million worth of debt at one point, at the point where he needs the $25 million to pay somebody, you write that nonetheless the people he victimized uh, weren't as angry at him as Bernie Madoff's victims were at him because, you write, he had a kind of charisma. What, what, he so had, talk about he had a, Solomon Dweck had a tremendous amount of charisma, and it's not the charisma that's born of the dapper, dashing, good-looking actor or public figure. 
He, he certainly is none of those. We're talking about a guy who's, who approaches six foot. He's pudgy. He's balding. I, I, I'm pudgy and balding also, but I'm not, I, don't, I don't look like a, a movie star. He, he just doesn't appear to be a physical presence. But still, he, he manages to, to get people to, to believe in him, to trust in him, to have faith in him. And, and the, the, the root of his charisma is something that we all can understand from our own personal lives, given whatever faith you might, you might have. It's the simple phrase, he was the rabbi's son. And by being the rabbi's son, that cloak that he wore through, through no doing of his own, frankly, was able to give him immediate integrity, or at least this, this patina of integrity, where people felt, so even at the end, he's, he's arrested, and the scandal is beginning to come out day by day, revelation by revelation. The state judge on the case assigns a lawyer to be a special fiscal monitor to start unwrapping all of this. The monitor meets with the individual victims, and one after another, they still trust Solomon. Oh, he wouldn't do anything wrong. He didn't mean it. He must have had a problem. These are all the victims of his Ponzi scheme, not the victims of his going undercover for no, the FBI. No, ab absolutely not. No, those guys have a different <laughs> feeling about him. No, um, no. He, this is this is this, this is people like his uncle this Joey. Is, or yeah, uncle well, Joey. his uncle Joey is a different case because. As we tell in the Who, jury, how much thing, money did he swindle from his uncle 60, Joey? Sixty million dollars from his uncle Joey. Sixty million dollars. Where did Joey get sixty million dollars? Joey is a very successful man in the garment industry, and and uh, like most of his investors, he saw how successful Solomon was in the real estate business and asked his nephew to invest for him. It's important, it's important, Michael, to understand, and, and frankly, it's a 300-page it's book, and we, would, we can talk about it all night long in, until you're all bored. But we're not going to go through all of the step-by-step, -step, but the bottom line is anybody, and there are probably a number of lawyers here in the room, anybody who has any familiarity with the Ocean County scene, the Monmouth County scene, the Jewish community in, in and around Deal along the shore, there is this understanding that the Syrian community that has taken over there, and I'm not trying to cast aspersions on any individual community, but the community as a whole has made its mark in the garment industry, which is an international industry awash in cash transactions. And there was the feeling among people in American law enforcement and among some outsiders for a long time that some of these companies associated with the garment industry are doing illegal business because there's just too much cash floating around and they're not properly reporting it. That's the universe that we're dealing with. Uncle Joey is a garment magnate. 60 million was a hit, but he's, he's by no means destitute afterwards. So how did Solomon Dweck get caught initially by the feds? It, he was running a Ponzi scheme and like all Ponzi schemes, it ran out of gas. He, he uh, wasn't getting any more new investors. After how many years? Four years. Um, and, and suddenly some of the loans were coming due and he didn't, he didn't have the cash to, to come up with it. And he, he, he was working on one last deal that he thought he was going to get a lot of money in from, from a, a new source. He, he, he was telling investors that he had a deal to, to buy the Deal Golf Course. Uh, 
which is it's, it's, it's undeveloped land, and it would be worth a fortune had, had he been able to, to, uh, to acquire it. As it turned out, it was another one of his scams that he, he did approach them, and they, they said no, but he kept, he kept uh, his various investors going with this on the assumption that the money was going to come in. Uh, was it the 25 million check that he cashed that coincided with his being caught by the feds? Yeah, it, well, it is. I, I asked, how did he get caught? You, you brought up the deal golf it, course. Well, that, but was that the same time frame? Yes, was that, yes. Was that why he needed the money? No, that was what he was going to cover the bad check with um, when, 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 he, when uh, he, he was running out of money. He, he needed a bridge loan. Okay, and he needed a twenty-five million dollar bridge loan. So he self-financed. So he so <laughs> The interesting thing is, he had done this before. He had gone not for twenty-five million dollars, but he he would go to PNC Bank all the time. He would he would cash a check. There would be insufficient funds, and then like a few days later, the money would come in and everything would be okay. And PNC actually did an internal investigation because they thought that there was a check-kiting scheme going on back then. And they decided, well, he's always paid it back. There's no problem. He is in an industry where money flows back and forth. He's, he's good for the cash. Sure. Right. So, so the next morning, he tries the, the second $25 million check scam. They catch him on that. It is, the bank catches him. The bank catches him. They don't negotiate the second $25 million. It is those two $25 million checks that lead ultimately to the Monmouth County Prosecutor's Office and the FBI arresting him. But not right away. Not right away. Because cause he was still running the scam. He kept on telling people he could, he could make up the, the loss, that money was going to be coming in. They, some people still thought this deal golf course was, was still in the cards. And, and PNC kept on giving him a chance to pay it back and pay it back. Meanwhile, his Uncle Joey, who had figured out what was going on by now, made him sign over all of his property so, so that he could be made whole. So how do we get from this set of facts to Solomon Dweck going undercover for the U.S. Attorney's Office in Newark? Well, he, he, he gets arrested, finally. And he, he gets hauled down to, to uh, the uh, U.S. District Court in, in Newark. And he's... he's uh, Photograph coming out. He's charged with a now a $50 million bank fraud and facing 30 years in, in, in prison. And that's how we come to the next part of the story. Well, pick it up. Pick, you pick it up. Facing 35 million, 30, 35, facing 30 years in prison on a $50 million bank fraud. He's in his mid to late 30s. He's got, he's got uh, four children with a fifth on the way. And he does not want to go to jail for that long. And so he does what every other self-respecting guy who's caught <laughs> wants to do. He wants to roll over. But the problem is... Meanwhile, wait a second. He, he, yes. This has all been publicized. That he, all been publicized. Yeah, every, Asbury Park Press wrote about it. His father, left, the everyone, rabbi. The rabbi's knows. there. He, he, okay. they had a big it was a big thing about how his in-laws had to put up their house to make bail for him. And there was, a, there was some, some great interaction between Solomon and the magistrate judge during his arraignment. This is all wide open. And in fact, it's Chris Christie at the time, the U.S. attorney, is, is doing a victory dance 
In the U.S. Attorney's Office, a $50 million bank fraud is like winning a lottery for them. It's a great case. They had Dweck dead to rights. Their feeling was, you know what? Punch his ticket, he's going to the big house. $50, 50 million bank fraud, 30 years. Put the press release out. This guy, he, he has nowhere to go with this. We have him on video cameras. It's only him. This is the easiest case we're ever going to make. No investigation necessary. That's, that's it. Then what happens? Then what happens is he go, his attorney starts to make a play to, to, uh, um, to enter into a cooperation agreement. And, and Christie won't buy into it. Christie is telling his associates, do I really want to get into bed with this guy? He, he, he has no doubt that, that Dweck knows more than, than just, just what they arrested him on, but they don't trust him. So who convinces the U.S. Attorney Chris Christie to give it a try and let Dweck go undercover for a little while? What, what Christie didn't, it's his senior aides in, in the U.S. Attorney's Office and, and people in the FBI. What Christie didn't realize is that through the course of the previous number of years, there had been a, a number of investigations and, and indictments that came down through the Operation Bid Rig cases in Monmouth and Ocean County. Mayors, council members, town administrators, or an engineer, one of the big engineering firms actually went belly up as a result of it. In the course of those investigations, the feds had heard Solomon Dweck's name. When Dweck's name comes across the transom in Newark at the U.S. Attorney's Office, the corruption prosecutors say, aha, he knows stuff that we want to know. So coinciding with Dweck's willingness to roll over and his lawyer pounding away, his lawyer was literally on Christie's call sheet every day for weeks, and Christie would not take the calls. Finally, they give the, the lawyer, they give Dweck's lawyer a meeting in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and it's set up like a firing squad where all the heaviest hitters from the U.S. Attorney's Office are arrayed around the conference room table. Dweck's two lawyers come in, hat in hand, to try to make this play. Behind closed doors, the corruption guys, Ralph Mara is a name that people know. Ralph becomes the U.S. Attorney after Christie leaves. At the time, Mara was Christie's top deputy. Mara, along with the corruption squad, says to Christie behind closed doors, look, we have nothing to lose here. If Dweck gives us more bad guys, it's another victory dance. If Dweck doesn't give us more bad guys, we're still going to send them away for 30 years. It's a no-lose situation, and it's that. You know, Christie, as we're all starting to see now that he's governor, Christie is a really, really strategic thinker. And he's all about the upside-downside calculation. And this is an easy bet for him because, as he likes to say, and he says this phrase all the time, it's heads I win, tails you lose. Either they get Dweck and other bad guys, or they get Dweck and he goes away for 30 years. Six months, that's the first, the first bite. Christie says to Mara and the corruption guys, let him try for six months, and we'll review it then. So initially, uh I know from reading your book, and by the way, it's a wonderful book. Uh, it's a real page turner. It helps if, like me, you know everybody in the book. But even if you don't, I think it's pretty fascinating. You should stop hanging out in prison. <laughs> <laughs> I've been hanging out in Hudson <laughs> County. All, all you have to do. Uh, for the first six months to a year, Dweck is really uh, only producing money laundering in the Orthodox Jewish community. He's not, he's not coming up with any uh, 
politicians willing to take, take bribes. Is that correct, and why is that? He, he's running in circles. Um, he had, when they came in, they promised that they, they knew a lot about money laundering, about political corruption, and about other things. The problem was, in terms of this case, what he knew about political corruption was down in Monmouth County. And everybody knew Solomon Dweck down in Monmouth County. So he, he, he could not wear a wire down there and, and, and try to get anybody on tape, because they would have suspected it right away. But for some reason, the, the money launderers trusted him. Even though they knew the story, they, they want, they, they, not so much they trusted him, they wanted to help him out. So initially, the case focused around the money what launderer. What did he tell the money launderers? He told them that he's in bankruptcy, which was true that he, you know, he's, he's got five kids, he's got a wife, and they have to eat, and, and, and how are we going to send the kids to yeshiva, and how are we going to, to uh, pay for everything? Can you help me get some money out of the business? Dweck, out of what Dweck, business? Out of, out, of his, out of his real estate business. He had a real estate empire. Dweck prayed, and the money laundering side of this case, he prayed on the sense of pity that other Orthodox Jews would have for one of their own. They knew that he was in trouble financially, and they knew that he had five children and a wife to support. And so he knew that But these, they were already in the money laundering they game. Were, as he advertised to the feds, yes. But and why they, would and, they... And, and they were primarily connected with religious institutions. They were they, rabbis or right. connected to... That, well, in right, fact, right. not prim primarily, actually all had to be. That was the vehicle to launder the money. Explain how... The, the money laundering was actually one of, the, one of the, the simplest kinds of crimes. It's impossible to prove unless you have a cooperator inside. But it's basically a tax scam writ large. I take $100,000, for instance, that may come from illegal activity, an illegal diamond sale, an illegal drug sale, an illegal whatever. Take my $100,000 in the form of a check. I go to my local synagogue if I know the rabbi is laundering money. I write that $100,000 check to the rabbi, for the, to the synagogue, give it to the rabbi. The rabbi would then turn it around and I would get $90,000 back in cash. So there are a number of crimes that have been committed there. First of all, I'm going to take the full $100,000 charitable donation credit on my tax return. That's a huge flag. That'll put you in jail right away on that. Then you have the, the fact that the, there's the fact you're laundering money. These are illegal profits you're trying to hide from the government somehow. In Dweck's case, he would advertise that he was running an illegal handbag manufacturing and distribution ring. Or sometimes he would advertise that he's trying to get money out of his bankrupt company without the bankruptcy trustee knowing about it which is, as the lawyers in the room will say, a bankruptcy fraud, another big no-no in the federal system. But he kept describing that these were illegal proceeds. He needed to do that because he needs the money launderers for the feds to make the case ultimately in court. The money launderers need to not only actually launder the money, they need to be aware actively that they are laundering illegal proceeds from an illegal transaction of some sort. And in fact, the law tightened up in the middle of this case through a Supreme Court ruling, and so there were actually some of the money laundering recordings that had to be thrown out because me, of it. Let me stop you there. Yeah. The recordings. Mm -hmm. uh, Dweck wore something like this that record. What, what, what did Dweck 
where? Dweck wore a... And a, why wasn't it spotted? <laughs> it was very, very small. It was, um, it was a system that they called the Hawk. And it was a video and, and, and uh, um, audio surveillance system. Uh, we think it, it was either on a button on his shirt or so, something of that size. And, and what, what was interesting about the surveillance system is that, that um, in years past, when, when informants went into meets, they, they would wear an old NAGRA recorder, which they would maybe put on the small of their back or, or something. An old what kind of recorder? NAGRA, that was the, the and what, name. And what, what, what was it? What it, it, is? it was about that small, and, and, and it was hard to pick up sounds. In fact, what was interesting about it was that, that uh, they had a hard time picking up sounds in diners because of the ambient sounds, because of the plates and, and everything. Well, you know better than anyone else, all business in New Jersey is conducted in diners. So this- We're, we're going to a diner tomorrow to do a television <laughs> to conduct show, some go business. ahead. This opened a whole new world for, for, for the FBI with this new technology, because in years past, the recordings were so bad that before a trial would even begin, the defense and the prosecutors would argue over what exactly was said. And they'd have a transcript, and they, they would argue that this word was this, and it would go on for a long time. With the technology that they employed in this case, there was no question about who said what. You could hear everything very, very clearly, um, uh, no matter where they were at the table. All right, so Dweck, maybe it's a button, or maybe it's like it, well, it also, it also, to make things even more complicated, it moves around. That's the other thing. It moves around. It moves around. There are some days where the feds have him wired with it up here, some days down here. Now, this is. We, the reason why we're hedging a little bit is because this was probably the closest held secret in all this reporting. The feds would give us no information about the recording system. They would talk all day long about certain parts of the case, but not about the recording system. And we had to actually go directly to the FBI in Washington with a series of printed questions to get any information about the Hawk at all. So what they would do is some days when they wired Dweck, they'd wire him up here. Some days down here. We know that because if you see the vantage point on some of the video footage, sometimes it's like neck level. This afternoon, Ted and I were reviewing some video footage before we came in here tonight, and it's a belly level. You know, it's, it, it moves around, it's that small. It's most likely uh, a shirt button, or like inside the middle of a shirt button, something that might be able to be stuck inside the little hole in a men's jacket lapel, or be stuck in a button next to the collar, something like that. How much cooperation did you get from the federal prosecutors? Uh, well, there's a, the nice thing for us, and this is not a political statement, but the nice thing for us is that Governor Christie won the election or left the U.S. Attorney's Office because he was free to cooperate as much as he chose. And to his credit and, and to help us out uh, in the story, he has an incredible taste for detail, as you know. He has an incredible gift for storytelling, and Democrats would say it's storytelling, storytelling, <laughs> but, you know, um, it's storytelling. And he has an incredible eye for, for pertinent details that reporters need to be able to tell a narrative. So he gave us a tremendous amount of cooperation. We received some cooperation from the federal government and from the FBI. The FBI was gracious in walking us through the mechanics of a massive takedown. They wouldn't go through the investigation, but they went through the mechanics of the day of the arrest. At one point in our reporting process, I don't mind saying, the current US attorney, Paul Fishman, actually put out an order that nobody was to cooperate with us anymore. 
And in fact, he went to Washington to the Justice Department and invoked his authority as the chief law enforcement officer of the state that nobody should help us out. So that chilled things for a couple of days, but then we got back in the game with some of the people that were talking to us privately. The, the book is full of dialogue recorded on the little camera between Dweck and unwitting targets who make themselves look kind of foolish and venal uh, when they don't realize they're being recorded. And this is a, uh, as much a question I'm asking as a fellow reporter, as and maybe I'm more interested in the answer than these people, but all of that dialogue uh, suggests to me that the feds let you see some surveillance tapes. I know that what's been introduced at trial is public record. You could look at that, but will you answer the question, were you able to see things that we haven't seen? Yes. Okay. I will answer that question, and I will say very, uh, but I'm going to, respond to another part of what you just said in the preamble to that. We were very fortunate in the reporting process that sources trusted us with evidence that has not yet been unsealed. Judge Linares in Newark has locked down everything until the, one of the parties needs to enter it into evidence at trial, which is a very, very limited universe when you take into account that there are 3,000 specific meetings that were recorded. 3,000. 3,000. 3, it took up a, the DVDs turned sideways. The thin way took up an entire wall in the U.S. Attorney's Office when the case was finally over. So a small fraction of that has been entered into evidence. We have sources who allowed us access to unsealed material at their, at their own professional peril. Now, in terms of your point that the feds let us see it, I would love to be able to respond to that directly, but I can't limit the universe of potential sources out there for fear that I might out a source accidentally. But let's just say that Fishman was insistent that nobody under his authority could cooperate with us. All right, that answers it enough. Um, after maybe a, a dozen money laundering rabbi types, the case shifts into the political realm starting with low-level operators and working upwards. How high does it get? It uh, got all the way up to Governor uh, Corzine's cabinet. Um, but you're right, it started very low, and that was because it, it basically was a chain. He had to go from person who knew the next person who knew the next person. So he started. He worked at this pretty uh, feverishly, did he not? Absolutely, and and he, every day he worked not only every day, but but it, what we did at one point was we took all of the criminal complaints that had been released and put it into a database and and made ourselves a little chronological uh, timeline to see what he was doing, and and it just blew our minds at at, at one point where we're seeing that he's meeting five, six people on the same day, going from Williamsburg, going to Deal, going, going uh, to, to Brooklyn, back and forth and back and forth. He started, one day, being that we're down here in Atlantic County, he started one day, I think, early afternoon with, you know, with meetings in, at the Borgata, and within a couple of hours, it seems like somehow the parkway had gotten compressed in his day. He winds up in Jersey City having a dinner meeting where he's getting another bad guy. You and I have done that on occasion. <laughs> you know what, but I'm not going to talk about how fast I drive today. Are there any cops? There are lawyers. Any cops in the room? Um, <laughs> right, well, then I didn't when, say that. 
when Dweck is dealing with rabbinical types, he's Solomon Dweck. Yes. When he's dealing with political types, he adopts an alias, David Essenbach. Correct. And I'm stunned. He's gotten maybe 15 or 20 political people to accept FedEx envelopes stuffed with $10,000 in cash before you write, somebody Googles David Essenbach, and there is no David Essenbach. Right. The other 15 or 20 didn't Google him? No, and the no. guy that Googled him came to a book signing last <laughs> week, and you, this guy is really happy. <laughs> uh, he, he Googled him, and when nothing turned up, he figured out. He Googled him, but this is really close to the end. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was extraordinary to us. That's why the, the, the book has, has a little bit of humor in it, and... and a lot of humor in it. And part of it is our, is our commenting or analyzing various anecdotes because we had to put ourselves in the reader's shoe a little bit, which is something we can't do in, in the newspaper every day. We need to, to show you that, yeah, we can't believe this either. And we couldn't believe this at various points. And so, yes, Dweck has, has brought more than 25 people into various bribery-related political crimes on this case. And three days before the arrests are going to take place, finally, the former president of the zoning board in Guttenberg says, you know what, he's talking weird. And they, he had complained the guy was talking weird. He's talking weird, he's talking fast. None of what he's saying makes really any sense who is David Essenbach? And he sits down at this cluttered little office in a hole in a wall he has in Guttenberg, and he Googles him, and he finds nothing. And he says to himself, you know what? I am not going to that meeting tomorrow. Because remember, at this point, Dweck has put himself forward to these political types as a mega developer, uh, the kind of guy who has a Gulf Stream waiting at Teterboro, the kind of guy who can buy 600 mobile Exxon gas stations in one transaction because Mobile Exxon needed to divest some of its holdings because of a merger. The kind of guy who, you know, who just jets around the world and puts up, or would put up, a 40-story building on a chromium dump along the Turnpike Extension in Jersey City. And nobody ever questioned him. And no him. one ever questioned him. So David Hepperly, the guy in, in Guttenberg, says, you know what? If this guy is who he says he is, and I can't find one reference to him on Google, this is a meeting I'm going to take a pass So on. who did take envelopes? It's a long list. <laughs> <laughs> the higher-ups. The mayor of Hoboken, 23 days in office, gets and he arrested. And he took more than he was even charged with. And it also went back for more. Right. Now, OK, wait, that, that raises an issue I've always had uh, about some of these things. Uh, he took cash in FedEx envelopes for his campaign. Okay. Is that the same thing as taking it for your pocket? I mean, uh, Leona Baldini, the deputy mayor of Jersey City, the former burlesque queen uh, who's now in her 70s, uh, she took money, but it was for Mayor Jerry Healy's campaign, of which she was the treasurer. It, it, to my way of thinking, that's a little less venal than taking it to put in your bank account. Through the Jersey Sting, we, we, don't, we don't 
hold ourselves out as, as scholars of Jewish law or, or authorities in Jewish law or, or federal criminal statutes. And that's, it's important because we understand the distinction you're drawing. The law doesn't draw that distinction. In, but Camerano and Baldini are two different cases. As we lay out, what Camerano was doing was he actually was putting money in his pocket. Because what happened was, and, and any of you, I, I'm, I'm, not enough, I'm not familiar enough with the local politics here in Atlantic County and, 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 and Cape May County, but in Hudson County, you have this proliferation of municipalities that have nonpartisan elections. As nonpartisan elections automatically become free-for-alls in big communities, bigger communities. In Hudson County, it's even more of a free-for-all than that. And it winds up, for a number of different reasons, becoming very expensive. Camerano was in a very, very expensive political environment. Three council members, each with big followings, running in Hoboken for the mayor's office for a vacant mayor's spot. Mayor Roberts was not seeking re-election. So you have this free-for-all, as I say. If nobody wins a clear majority, you have a, run, a runoff election three weeks or four weeks later between the two top vote-getters. Camerano squeaks by, he gets into a runoff. So now he has one really expensive, crazy election, and then a second really expensive, crazy election. And he basically starts emptying his bank account. He starts writing all sorts of checks out of his own pocket to cover expenses. He starts writing so many checks on his campaign account that first he runs out of money to cover the checks, and then he runs out of checks. He literally ran out of checks in the checkbook to pay street workers to, to put him over the top. And in the end, he wins by, I'm sorry, I don't have the number committed to memory right now. He wins by a small handful of votes, 100 or 200 votes in a town of Ho in, the, in the city of Hoboken. And so the money that he's taking in bribes, at least a portion of it, is to cover his own expenses that he had Checks he wrote that he couldn't cash. Uh, you say the law doesn't distinguish. I once had a conversation with Chris Christie when he was U.S. Attorney and had just busted somebody, I don't remember who. Maybe it was Jim Treffinger, the Essex County Executive, who had also taken some money for his campaign. And I said, isn't it different when it's for the campaign than when it goes into your pocket? And he said, absolutely not. It's all for your self-aggrandizement, whether it's to spend or to it enhance your, your stature in the community. It's funny because with Camerano, within 24 hours of the arrest, so this is July 24th, 2009, Camerano hires one of the highest profile attorneys in New Jersey, Joe Hayden, who represented Jason Williams and, and a number of other uh, high profile clients. Within 24 hours of the arrest, Hayden is out there spinning the story or spinning the defense. Josh, it, it, you have to understand, it's not for Peter, it's, 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 it's for the campaign. He does this. And so I take that back. You know how reporters are. We go to one side of the street and get a comment and go to the other side of the street and get another comment. So I take that back to the feds. And the feds start laughing at me on the phone. They're like, let him go to trial with that defense. You know, <laughs> great. For the exact same reason you just said. All right. So uh, two members of the state assembly, L. Harvey Smith and Daniel Van Pelt, are uh, uh, ensnared in this. Um, a number of officials in Jersey City. How many mayors? All three polls? mayors. Three mayors. Uh, a bunch of deputy mayors and operatives. Council president in Jersey City. Council president in Jersey City. Forty-four people in all are rounded up on the morning of July 23rd, 2009. Uh, 
um, which is right in the midst of the governor's race. Uh, John Corzine's running for re-election against Chris Christie, who had resigned in early January of that year, or maybe it was in early December of that right. year, and he announced in early February. But we all knew when he resigned that he was going to run for governor. So there are a lot of people who think that the timing of the culmination of this two or three year sting had a political taint to it or a political mo motive behind it. Uh, I know we're not going to answer that question definitively, but what are the arguments on either side uh, for whether this was politically motivated somehow? Well, the arguments against it would be, one of the arguments against it would be that, that the head of special prosecutions was a man by the name of Jimmy Nobile, who, who in the U.S. Attorney's, in the US attorney's Office. If, if, if anything like that were, were going on on his watch, he'd probably arrest himself. That's how ethical he views these things. And in fact, it affected the case because he actually was, was uh, he recused himself a week before the, the arrest came down because he got a job uh, proposal just before the, the arrest happened. And, and his absence in the case uh, affected a lot of, of what went wrong with the case later on. I noticed at the end of the book you have him back in the U.S. Attorney's Office. Did he leave and come back? Or did he, he, never, never, he, he did not leave. He just he left the case. The job. The, 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 when we started the process of researching and writing the Jersey Sting, it was November of 09, shortly after the governor's election. Okay? So it's, it's the arrest happened July of 09. Christie wins the first week of November of 09. We start our process the end of November of 09, and we finish seven months later. Ted and I had, had like reporting any investigative piece in the newspaper, we had no idea where the story was going to take us. We knew the beginning, we knew the ending, because obviously that's what it, it, it happened. It's not a novel. But we didn't know where the road was going to take us along the way. We did know, however, there were certain questions we needed to tackle. One of them was the politics. We needed to at least be able to get to a point of, of understanding the timing of the bust. Because the accusations were flying left and right very, very quickly. And, and everybody heard them. And in fact, the accusations continued. As, as you read through the book, you still see that, that there is still some lingering hostility over the issue. Not from Governor Corzine, interestingly. He does not believe it was political. Um, but other people do. So what the, what the, 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 the pro-Corzine spin, for lack of a better term, was that the feds were beholden to Chris. They all got promoted by Chris. They all loved Chris that they timed this in the middle of the election because this would highlight Christie's background as the corruption-busting super prosecutor, and it would make the election about that and about Christie's corruption history or corruption-fighting history more than about anything else. And in the process, it would also damage the Democratic Party because it seems that corruption busts in New Jersey. They hit Republicans, but they really hit Democrats. That's the spin. Just basically, if you take, if you see that it, the ground is wet outside, it must have rained. And uh, Joe Doria and plays Joe, into that. Joe Doria, Joe Doria the former Speaker of the Assembly, a prominent Democrat who had joined 
Corzine's cabinet as Commissioner of Community Affairs, and who did or did not get a raw deal out of this whole thing? Well, that, we, we don't answer the question intentionally, and we're glad that we are not required to answer that question because it really is a matter of perspective on Joe Doria, and we lay out exactly what happened with him. But Joe Doria, who was at the time a member of the governor's cabinet, he was not arrested, he was not charged, but his home and office were searched. It turns out that one of the bag men had, A, advertised that Doria was on the take, and B, had gotten Dweck to pass him $40,000 in marked money, and he advertised that he would then pass that money off to Joe Doria. There's never been any proof that Joe Doria took any of that money, even though some of it is missing. Doria has never been charged. As the feds say, the case continues. But the, the element of Doria being brought in, now that's a good point that you raised, that adds to the Democrats' pro-Corzine spin that this was all done to damage Corzine because the they didn't need the, to... The media was very present at Doria's home and at the Department of Community Affairs right. in Trenton when they were being searched. Right, so, they, so the Corzine people say that it must be that the feds and the Christie people tipped off the reporters because they were all there. Now that is a fallacy. Let me tell you this. Every newsroom worth its salt anywhere in the country has either scanners or pager services to find out what's going on with the police. Joe Doria's house was a circus that morning. Bayonne cops protecting the scene as teams of FBI agents swarmed the house, even if the reporters had not been tipped, and I know that I personally wasn't, but even if they hadn't been tipped... If you, you weren't, maybe nobody was. Yeah, you know, but the, it would have taken five minutes for the Jersey Journal and the Hudson Reporter and the New York Star-Ledger, which is only five minutes away, to get to Bayonne to, to, to watch the search, and the search went on all day. All right. But, but let's... Do you want to still do it? Yes, keep going. So the Christie, so the, the, the Christie spin is this. A, the federal government doesn't work this way. We don't conspire to damage candidates or aid campaigns. B, cases are taken down when they're taken down. And this case was basically an armed invasion of the metro area with more than 300 IRS and FBI agents, plus a dozen prosecutors. You don't just do that on a whim based on some political date on the calendar. And the most overarching piece of evidence the, the pro-Christie and pro-U.S. Attorney's Office people say is you need to go inside and understand why it was timed that way, what was going on in the, in the investigation. Look at the investigation. And so in the Jersey Sting, we actually dissect the investigation to be able to explain exactly what was happening in terms of time. And one of the things that you point out is that a federal judge in Trenton who was overseeing Dweck's bankruptcy was pounding on the U.S. Attorney's Office to wrap this up so that she could do what? The, she, the, uh, in the bankruptcy case, they, the uh, creditors in the case wanted to depose Dweck. And the U.S. Attorney's Office kept on trying to, to put that off because once he was deposed, everything would come out because he couldn't lie. Uh, um, so, so there was that pressure. There was also what, are the, what are the pressures were there to do it when they did it that would suggest it was not at all political? Well, there was the pressure of the fact that there was a new U.S. attorney coming in, Paul Fishman, and, and nobody knew what was going to happen when he did come in. So there was some internal um, push to, to get this case done before he came into office. Now, that is political, but it just is not Corzine Christie political. There's also, you write, and I have heard 
before, an unwritten rule in the U.S. Attorney's Office that you don't uh, do a political arrest or indictment within 60 days of an election. Is right. that, that, that that's the that's the practice here in New Jersey? So this was about 70 days, or what, and what, and no, so this more like 100 days. But this goes election. this goes into what Ted said about Fishman. So no, in 70 the, days. Go ahead. So in the U.S. Attorney's Office, you have all these competing pressures right now. If you take yourself back in time to July of '09. The bankruptcy judge has said there will be no more continuances or delays. Dweck is being deposed. Ralph Mara, I'm sorry. I know that you're the U.S. attorney, but I don't care. She literally says that to him. He, she calls him to his office in Trenton, and it's like going to the principal's office. Then on top of that, Mara knows that his, his window is, is, is closing. Fishman could be confirmed at any moment. Mara, A, wants the case to be done under his watch like anybody would, but more importantly, Fishman, and Fishman tells us this on the record in the book, Fishman is, at the very least, a conscientious, thoughtful guy. He's not going to come in one day and then say, yeah, sure, go arrest everybody tomorrow. He's going to want to press pause. He's going to want to review the documents, review some of the evidence. He might decide to do the arrests. He might not decide to do the arrests, but pressing pause would have put them within the 60-day window before the election, and Mara would not allow that. Was there also a clock ticking on Dweck's cover being blown? Uh, um, there was always fear that his cover was going to be blown because he, he was always, always going beyond the bounds of what he was supposed to be doing. He, How so? He was scripted. All the time he was scripted, but, but even while he was... The FBI... Uh, rehearsed him. Rehearses you. Right. Okay. But, but he never followed the script. He, he, there were times when he would go to a politician and he would tell them, I, I'm, I'm not a member of the Democrat Party, I'm not a member of the Republican Party, I'm a member of the Green Party. Green, get it? Green, like cash. And they would look at him and go, yeah, okay. That wasn't in the script. You know, and the FBI is looking at this after, after it came back to the office, and they're just like shaking their heads. This guy is, is a rogue cannon. And there was legitimate fear in the office that at some point he was going to blow it. So I can see a, a pretty good case for the Christie point of view that this was, that these were external, non-political forces that caused this to happen. But when it happened, and by the way, uh, we're going to open this up to you all for questions in a, about five minutes. When it happened, you write, John Corzine knew he was going to lose the election. Yes. Uh, you also write, something I never heard before, was that nine months earlier, all his aides told him he was going to lose the election so he shouldn't run for re-election except he didn't agree with them. It, it's, it, it was probably, for me, as a political reporter, one of the most remarkable series of interviews I've ever conducted. I mean, I, I have had the honor of, of covering governors, even a couple of presidents, but to get this deep inside and to find out exactly what had gone on, which is so contradictory to everything that we're trained to see as political reporters. The, the rule in politics is both guys, women, whatever, say they're going to win. They believe it with their, their whole heart. I'm going to win because of blah, blah, blah. And the other guy says the exact same thing. And on come election night, someone loses. Oh, it's such a surprise. We thought we had it in the bag all along. That's not the case here. Corzine walked into this election, into this campaign in 2009. He was the only voice of his inner circle 
who thought he even had a fighting chance. At what point? Like January, February? Yes. It, I, I don't remember the exact timing as we have in the book, but there are two critical meetings that occur at his business manager's luxury apartment in Manhattan. One meeting, I think, is around the time of the uh, conventions in 08, in uh, August, September. And forgive me, if that fact is off, you know, it's Ted's fault. Um, <laughs> but uh, what happens is they gather and they go around the table. And everybody is unanimous that he can win. It would be a tough slog. We are going to probably face Christie. Christie is formidable, but Jersey's a blue state, and it's going to be OK, and the governor's got unlimited resources, and John Corzine's a really good guy, and people have a great affinity for him. That's their spin inside. Come after the, shortly after that, we have the fall economic collapse which is a big deal, but it's especially a big deal for John Corzine because of who he was before he was the governor, Goldman Sachs. He also, really his polls you know, were falling like a rock. He had months and months of bad news. So they reconvene December, January, and around the table again, to a person they all say, do not run this race, you will lose. It's funny because there's a wonderful story in New Jersey political lore about Brendan Byrne in 1977, at around the same time, after he uh, created the state income tax, and all of his advisors said, you're going to lose, except one, John Degnan, his attorney general, attorney general. Or who would become his attorney general in the second term, who said, I think you can win re-election. And of course, we know Brendan Byrne did. But it is a similar kind of powwow. Right. And it, it, Byrne wasn't convinced he could win, but you say Corzine Corzine was convinced, but Corzine, understand the psychology of John Corzine, and in addition to Governor Christie giving us considerable access for, this, for the research here, Governor Corzine gave us tremendous time and, and access and assistance. He provided people from his staff to help answer questions about times and dates and places. Really remarkable, and, and we do give them both credit in the book, and you know, take the politics aside for a second. They, they, they gave us the level of access and detail and context that didn't necessarily serve a flattering picture of either one of them 100%, but they were both really helpful for this process. Corzine is a guy who believes in himself completely, even when no one else believes in him. You know that. People, there are people in the room who have worked for him or with him. And he just had this blind faith in his own ability that, come what may, people trust me because I'm trustworthy, and I'm a good guy, and my heart's in the right place, and I can do it. And that's it. The, the polls said he was wrong, way wrong. And this is actually not in the book because we had to edit some stuff out. He, would, he had different pollsters, and he insisted on going to different pollsters that they kept giving him bad news. He would switch pollsters <laughs> to try to get better news, and they were all telling him, you're going to lose. But he's kept, he kept doing it. And you got to, on some level, just the pain it must have been for this man, everyone saying he's going to lose to run this slog, but finally come July 23rd, 09. So remember the backstory. John Corzine is, is, is colossally wealthy, has a beautiful place on the Hoboken waterfront, beautifully appointed, you know, floor-to-ceiling views of the Empire State Building. He's woken up by his aide. There are arrests happening. One of the people arrested, connected to Camerano, is arrested in his very building in Hoboken, coincidentally. So they're doing arrests in his building. People that he has shaken hands with, put his arm around, hugged in public, given donations to, are being arrested. He's woken up. He's told, don't answer the phone. He gets up. 
and he's standing in front of a flat screen TV on one side with views of New York on the other side, and he is coming to the conclusion, sickening in the pit of his stomach that it was, this is done. I've lost this race. This, these, are my, these are my friends. These are my party members. Is that why he lost? He doesn't think so. He thinks he lost because the economy was, was, was bad. Uh, unemployment was terrible, and, and um, he, he thinks that, that um, people were just tired. Of him? Of him. He wanted to change. Uh, anybody in the room want to uh, ask these guys a question? Yeah. Um, I, I read the book, and I've also been Hang on one second so we can hear you better. Okay. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I read the, uh, just finished up the book, and I also followed the story quite a bit when it first came out. I read all the criminal charges, watched a lot of the videos, and my impression is that certainly a lot of these guys who were convicted and, and charged are as guilty as can be. But I can't help but see a few where it looks like they really were sort of pushed into saying things that they didn't really say or mean the way it came off. And for some of them, like Doria, maybe Suarez in uh, Ridgefield or Ridgefield Park, um, it seems like uh, the feds were overzealous, that like once they got you know their teeth into it, they weren't going to let go. Um, did you come away with that impression at all? After all, because you obviously have seen a lot more evidence than I have. But some of them, just a few of them, it looked like they really probably, to me at least, weren't guilty. Uh, did you get that impression at all? Well, Dweck, Dweck was a talker. Dweck could, could, could spin a, a story, and, and he just, at, the defense attorneys, when they first saw some of these, these videos, were, were just incredulous. That he, that he never shut up. Even when people tried to walk away, he never shut up. Um, and and in, in, in the case of L. Harvey Smith, who was acquitted finally, uh, he was saying some very damning things on, on, on the videotapes. At one point, he tells Dweck, stop talking, stop talking. I, I, I feel like I ought to patch you down. Yet the jury saw the rest of these videotapes and, and came to the same conclusion, I, I guess, that you did, that that there was a lot of talking going on. But as you saw from the end of the, of the Jersey thing, you actually do see not only some of the weaknesses of the cases, you actually see confusion and backbiting and internal feuding inside the U.S. Attorney's Office. And Ted and I, first of all, we had to finish the book and send it to the publisher before uh, some of these other cases collapsed. We only had time to get Suarez's acquittal into the epilogue but there was one of the political defendants, he had, Richard Green, had all charges dismissed at the request of the U.S. Attorney's Office even. That's very unusual. And then we had Smith was acquitted at trial. And our, our belief is that, like yours, some of these cases were very, very solid, and maybe, in fact, most of them. There were some instances where the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office, their eyes were bigger than their stomach. They were trying to run up the score and they're paying the price now. Uh, just if I can uh, respond to your question, I, I, there's an element uh, in their account of this case that suggests that the, the prosecutors 
were engaged in big game hunting. Um, I think you may even use that phrase at, at some point or something close to it. It really comes across as a game uh, for them and the bigger the target, the better the score, the better they feel. And uh, so I understand the basis of your question, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Could you explain the situation that Lou Manzo um, created or brought to court and the judge said that some charges should be dismissed because he was not a public official? The Manzo and, thing. And also in connection with that, we're not like Phil Kenny and Guy Catrillo who's in Fort Dix prison, also not public officials? The, the Manzo situation is different than the other situation where, where some of the cases were bad. The U.S. Attorney's Office was acting when they charged Manzo and people that were running but not in office. They were working under the legal theory that the law that applies to bribery of a public official applies to somebody who's running for that office. So as if you were already in office by running for it. Manzo decided he was going to fight that, saying you can't apply to a private citizen the law that bans bribery for a public official, even if I'm running for that office. And it turns out that the judge overseeing these cases agreed with him. Uh, the Court of Appeals in Philadelphia agreed with the judge. And the US Attorney's Office now does not know what it's going to do. Now, Manzo has been indicted on additional charges. And even if they throw out all these charges, the feds are still going to take Manzo to trial. But the, the biggest charges he's facing may well get thrown out. But we don't know the end of that story yet. Well, Catrillo actually was a public official. He, wasn't, he was running for office, but he was also a Jersey City official. So that, that doesn't apply and to And Phil him. Kenny, I believe, was also a campaign treasurer for one of the other candidates. They, they basically, if they have you in a, a government office, that's how they can use that law that way. Um, but the Manzo thing is, is, is really complicated. And the Manzo thing happens. That's the other piece of this. We're all experienced. You know, Remember the whole story with Rudy Giuliani, where a number of his high-profile cases were thrown out on appeal after he left the US Attorney's Office in Manhattan uh, because they were flawed cases. And with Manzo, his case is airtight. It's the law that's questionable right now. Uh, somebody else? The young lady in the middle. Bill Gormley. Oh. Wait, wait a second. Oh, yeah, we forgot. But, but say, say it on mic. Everyone would like to hear about the uh, body parts. <laughs> we forgot that aspect. Probably the strangest element of this entire sordid case. And, and we didn't learn the truth about this until very late in the reporting process. When, 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 uh, for, for those of you who don't know about the body parts, there was an individual who was arrested for brokering a human kidney. Um, and this actually is the first case ever brought on, on, under U.S. law for, for brokering a, a, a uh, human organ. Uh, the, the law is so old, actually, it was written by a young congressman by the name of Al Gore. And, and it has, has never been tested in court. And in, in this particular case, um, uh, Dweck, with an FBI agent posing as a secretary, um, arranged uh, for, for a transplant to, to occur um, 
using the uncle, there was a fictitious uncle of this secretary. They never actually completed the transaction, but they arranged for it. We, we couldn't figure out how this fit into anything. It, it, it wasn't a political corruption angle. It, it certainly wasn't money laundering. How did, did Dweck possibly get involved with all this? And there was all sorts of speculation that, that they used him because he was a member of the Syrian community and, and possibly he had an in there. But the truth of the matter is, is we found out much later, Dweck's own grandfather had arranged for a kidney transplant through this broker. So he had knowledge of this. And, and as long as they were going for the ride, they, they threw this into the in, mix uh, as well. In 2008, a kidney went for $160,000. I don't know what it goes Not, not including installation. Not including <laughs> installation. Parts only. Parts only. And, and labor. Parts and, and labor. And the donor only gets 10000 of that. Okay. Uh, Daniel Van Pelt was a young assemblyman, uh, or I don't know how young he was. He was a new assemblyman right. when all of this happened, and he got caught up in it. And you write that he too had a kidney uh, problem, and that that might have been something that he and Dweck talked about. Oh, and this, talk and this was one of the great moments. Ted, Ted is the expert in this in this anecdote, but this is the great Solomon Dweck almost crashing his own investigation because. Solomon Dweck, remember, is Solomon Dweck in the kidney and money laundering investigation. He morphs at the phone booth into David Essenbach when he goes to meet the politicians. So he's meeting with Daniel Van Pelt, the assemblyman, talking about bribes as David Essenbach. And then he starts talking about kidneys because Daniel Van Pelt has a kidney problem. And he starts talking about his grandfather getting this kidney. And, and he gives this long song and dance in, in, in a diner one day about buying a kidney. But you can't mix the two cases, because if he actually started going down this path, suddenly, suddenly Solomon Dweck is going to come face to face with, with Dave Essenbach, and it's not going to be pretty. Who else? Here and then up there. Congratulations on this great book, you guys. It's fantastic. Thank and you. Uh, I'm curious, you're both writers. You've written for newspapers, magazines. Is this a different experience, writing a book? What's uh, the difference? What I'm getting at is it, it's more than just a long story with no word count, but is there, is there a different process to you about writing a book as opposed to the writing you've done for newspapers? It, it, was, it was for me, but bear in mind, we started this process writing for a newspaper. A lot of what we were writing appeared in the newspaper as as news stories, and and as we, as 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 the narrative of of that grew, and we decided to write a book, it was a different type of writing. It, 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 it typical newspaper writing is you, you're taught in journalism school is this inverted pyramid where all the information goes up on the top, and 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 the story. Uh, narrows down lower and lower to, to the point where people might stop reading after a while. Uh, a book doesn't follow that, that, that uh, type of construction, and, and I don't know, for both of us, it was, it was kind of a, a new freedom for us. Ted and I have, have worked together for a number of years. We did a number of long-term projects together at the Star-Ledger and, and some other stories that, that had a faster turnaround. But I remember when we got into this and we, we had finally gotten the book deal, and obviously, you know, there's the old cliche, and it's a cliche because it's true about newspaper reporters wanting, wanting to get a book deal. So we were euphoric over it. And I remember calling Ted one night and 
were walking to the pizza joint one day near the office in Newark and saying, do we know how to write a book? And he said, yeah, we do. I said, oh, okay, we do. All right, well, there, all right, then question answered. I also remember um, calling him one night on the phone and, and telling him that I, I didn't have writer's block. I was always trained in journalism school that you, it's not possible to have writer's block. The cure for writer's block is writing. And it doesn't matter if it's good or bad, it has to get into the paper somehow. But I just didn't know where to start or how to, how to begin something or how to begin the process of finally starting to, to write after we had done some reporting. And I called Ted at home and he said, just start writing. And I did. And I found it really, really fun and liberating because for so many years, we're used to a daily deadline. We're used to a set inch count. Even if it's an important story and a long story, you know you're not going to write 7,000 words on it. I mean, 7,000 words, you start getting into entire sections of newspapers. A long story in the Star-Ledger would be 2,000 words. An average story would be 800 words. The book is 155,000 words, So, so which is double, by the way, of the, what the original book deal called for, but that's a whole different fight. But the, um, so it, it, was, it was liberating. I found myself at 2 o'clock in the morning on those nights that I could actually stay awake at the computer saying, man, you know what? I haven't written like this since college where I was able to write what I wanted to write and sort of say what I wanted to say and add an extra clause into the sentence and didn't have a maximum word length and didn't have an editor breathing down my back and saying, you know, we've got a bar to go to, so get us out of here. You know, it's, it was cool. There's some wonderful rendering of the New Jersey political life in the book. You, you both deserve a lot of credit for it. Thank you. Yeah. You had said that 44 people were arrested. I was just curious if um, all 44 were tried in different cases, and if so, if there was a connection between them other than Solomon Dweck. There, some of them, well, first of all, there have only, they've only been a, a small number of trials, and every one of the 44 is different. And the numbers change, and there's, there's weirdness to the numbers. So we can go through the, the litany of numbers. 44 people were charged that morning. 43 were arrested. One person has disappeared, vanished, believed to be a fugitive living in Israel beyond the reach of American extradition. Um, it, since then, additional people have been arrested on charges associated with this, but we're not rounded up that, that first day. Most people, most people that have, have gotten involved in the process, the criminal justice process, most of them have pleaded guilty. As of yesterday, when the chief rabbi of the Syrian community pleaded guilty, 26 have pleaded guilty. Two have been acquitted at trial. Three have been convicted at trial. Some of these people will go to trial or would go to trial or were arrested in, in collective complaints or indictments. Some were in single indictments. The rabbi yesterday was, in one, uh, it was alone in a complaint. It's basically, there's not, a, there's not a good logical rhyme or reason to it except that the feds tend to lump people into the same complaint or indictment if they're all being charged with the same crimes from the same instances of criminal activity. So if you and I hold up the same liquor store, we're going to be charged together. But if Ted and I hold up two different liquor stores, we're going to be charged separately. That's roughly what it is. And the case has two, has two tributaries. You have 
the bigger one with the, the, the more defendants on the political side, that's where he's David Essenbach. The smaller side is the, is the money laundering. You don't have any crossover. He's, there, he's never, he's never um, both, both people, just for obvious reasons. Uh, Josh, <laughs> Josh uh, says that two people were uh, acquitted. The first one who was acquitted was Anthony Suarez, the mayor of Ridgefield. And it was shocking that after all these guilty pleas that, uh, and, and convictions in court that somebody had gotten off. And so it occurred to me that he'd make a good guest on television. How did he beat the rap? How did he beat? He was the first. In 10 years. First in 10 years to, to uh, be acquitted of a Chris Christie public corruption charge. So I, about a week or two after the acquittal, I called him up and uh, we eventually hooked up and I invited him on the show. He, to my surprise, he said he would do it. Uh, his lawyer was one of the top defense lawyers in the state, Michael Critchley, famous guy. I, I said, maybe you want to come on with your lawyer. He said, All right, that would be good because I'd like to get Critchley on the show too. I called Critchley. Critchley didn't want any part of it, but he, he, he gave me 15 minutes on the phone. So the day of the interview arrived and uh, I was really primed. I had prepared and Suarez, who's a very unassuming boy-next-door type from Ridgefield in Bergen County, came into the studio on time, and he said, by the way, I can't talk about the case. <laughs> I thought, what are we doing here then? I said, what? well, he said, I can't talk about Dweck. I'm not going to talk about Dweck. I said, what are you going to talk about? He said, I'll tell you how I felt and what effect it had on my family. So we heard a lot about his kids and his wife that, on that half hour. It was kind of a bust. Two, we two weeks ago tonight, um, Ted and I had a, a, a party at the Heldrich Hotel in New Brunswick celebrating the launch of the book. And uh, Governor Christie, who doesn't like missing a party, especially a room full of reporters, showed up. And Mike Critchley made the rare appearance at, at, the, at the party. And it was funny because I happened to just coincidentally be standing right there as Critchley is behind me and Christie walks in. And the two of them are just yucking it up. And Christie, and, and so Critchley is saying something about, you know, I got, I got the one. I got the one referring to the fact that he got an acquittal in, in competition with the U.S. Attorney's Office. And Christie doesn't miss a beat and he says, you wouldn't have gotten it if I were still. <laughs> yes. Uh, in the last trial, they pulled Solomon Dweck as a cooperating witness. Uh, there are a few defendants remaining. As you pointed out, some may go to trial, some may not. What is the future of Solomon Dweck as a cooperating witness for the government? We, um, we've actually thought about this considerably. We don't believe that the feds have any fear of putting Solomon Dweck on the stand. The backstory is that Dweck got beaten up pretty badly by Critchley during the Suarez case. So for the next trial, the feds used another one of the bad guys who actually rolled over after getting arrested, a guy interestingly named Ed Cheatham. And so, <laughs> che so Cheatham, I, you can't make it up, that's why I wrote a book, right? I told you. So, so Cheatham, Cheatham stood in for Solomon Dweck. The, 
Dweck is a bad witness. By definition, all informants are bad witnesses. They wouldn't be called rats otherwise. They're bad witnesses. So the way it always works is the government, the feds, try to convince the jury, don't believe the guy, believe the video. He's not a person in this case. He's just a vessel for carrying a camera. That's roughly what it is. And of course, the good defense lawyers, all defense lawyers, try to rough up the informant, say, how can you believe this guy? He's a crook, he's a criminal, he's a swindler. He, he turned on his own community, his own family. They're always flawed. What happened, we think, with Smith was that Dweck had gotten beaten up pretty badly by Critchley. As we said, the Suarez case was the weakest of the government's cases. And they, they benched Dweck in the hopes of mixing it up a little bit with Cheatham. Calling but, an audible. I called an audible. We're going to miss They're used to beating up Solomon Dweck. Michael Critchley had a field day with him, took him out for a spin. The, the, everybody is impressed with what Critchley did to Dweck on the stand, no question about it. But in terms of the future of this case, it's really just a matter of the strong cases and, and what the videos show. And especially as you start getting into the money laundering cases now, and we don't want to sound like we're taking sides because we don't, we're not, we're happy not to, but we've seen some of the stuff and we quote it at length in the book and it's pretty ugly if you're hoping for an acquittal. You had yesterday, understand the scene yesterday in Trenton, 79 years old, the chief rabbi internationally of the Syrian Jewish community, one of the wealthiest enclaves, cul-de-sacs of, the, of, the, of organized Jewish life in the world. And he walks in to plead guilty to a federal felony. That's not because he was confident of an acquittal. And in fact, two weeks ago, um, Dweck was going to testify in the trial of Joe Cardwell. Um, and on the eve of the start of that trial, Cardwell pleaded guilty. Right. In fact, we were able, in the, in the book, we, we, we spend some time on Cardwell because he's a great, colorful character from North Jersey politics, has been in the game for generations, and it was one of those stunning moments when Cardwell was arrested that day because everyone thought Cardwell had always been perceived as being somebody who was always just one step ahead of the law, and he, you know, he was arrested finally. So we foreshadowed what Cardwell's defense was going to be, and it was a failing defense. Even if Solomon Dweck is a bad guy, and Solomon Dweck, I mean, I guess on the, on the marriage, he's a bad guy. Is Solomon uh, Dweck here tonight? Yeah, is, <laughs> is Dweck in the room? That's always the question we ask of these things. Uh, on that note, uh, and assuming Solomon isn't here, if you are well, if you here, are here, you want yes. to answer some questions. Uh, I want to thank you both very much, and thank you all for listening and participating. It's a very, very good read. I recommend it. Thank you. Thank you. Before we close and go out to the reception as well as book signing, I'd like to thank Sharon Schulman and her staff, the executive director of the Hughes Institute, for sponsoring today's event. The Hughes family is here with us tonight, and thank you for all that you do on behalf of the Hughes Institute. And of course, the president, Dot Sotkamp, who are here, thank you for all that you do with respect to this. And again, a, sh a warm Stockton thank you to Josh Margolin, Jeff Michael Aaron, okay. Ted Sherman. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay.